step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Here's your chance to improve your table conversation. Tell Michael you live in a big house and you spend £400 a week on clothes. I spend £400 a week on clothes. You eat in the best restaurants. I eat in the best restaurants. Georgina, try a little harder, please. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also back in the booth this week is Mr. Ken Stanley. Hi, Mike. It's great to be back. Thanks. This week we are looking at the 1989 film from director Peter Greenaway, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. The film tells the tale of Albert Spica, a monstrous gangster putting on airs as a gourmand. This loutish brute is the co-owner of a restaurant where he, his wife Georgina, played by Helen Mirren, and his crew are regulars. Also a frequent patron of the restaurant is Michael, a bookseller who is secretly Georgina's lover. We're going to be getting into spoilers on this episode, so if you haven't seen the movie, I doubt I'm going to keep saying the title of this one repeatedly, so I'm not going to say, if you haven't seen The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover... Go watch it, come on back, and when you're done, we will still be here. So, Sam, when was the first time you saw this film, and what did you think? I saw this. So, in college, I sort of randomly, like when Netflix was a new service, I don't remember why, but I got Greenaway's film The Pillow Book, which was made a couple years after this, and wasn't sure what to make of it, but couldn't stop thinking about it. So, this film is the one that I found second and at the time it was kind of difficult but fell in love and you know you'll get to i'll get to talk more about my ongoing love affair (laughs) how about you ken i saw in its initial release when it hit the theaters i was really looking forward to it because i had seen 
uh, Zed and Two Knots, Drowning by Numbers, and uh, Draftsman's Contract prior to to the release of this film. So it was like, what is going on? Greenaway is hitting the big screens. So I was really geeked to see it, and I, I was just really happy with it. It was the at up to that point, it was the most accessible of his films. And I just saw a lot into it metaphorically and everything. That was just wonderful to see at the time. Did you see this one at the Southland movie theater? I'd seen uh, Zed and Two Knots at the DIA. And the other two films I'd seen at art houses or university showings. So this was at a regular theater. Was I don't recall whether it was a Southland, but it was at a regular theater. It had had a lot of publicity. There was controversy about it, and it was at least a little bit of a box office success. So it was readily available. I do remember the controversy. This came out in 89, like I said, and I was 17 at the time. So this was when the debate about X ratings versus unrated was going on. This is before NC-17, but right on the cusp. I mean, we had just a few years prior, introduced a new rating, the PG-13. A lot of people talk about PG-13. Oh, my gosh, you know, the the whole furor over Gremlins and uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. A lot of people kind of miss the furor over NC-17, which is probably one of the biggest disasters of a rating out there because we thought, oh, great, here's a rating that signals this is for adults, not for children, but yet it's not necessarily pornographic. So we're getting away from the X rating. We're going to this new rating, the NC-17, and people still won't play that. I mean, like theaters just shy away from NC-17 movies. It is box office poison for whatever reason. So anyway, this was not NC-17. This was right prior to that. And so it was so titillating that this movie was so controversial. I ended up going to see it at the, the Southland Mall with a friend of mine. And this remains today the only Peter Greenway film that I've ever seen. What? I know, right? This whole year has been about cinematic blind spots for me so i i probably should have picked another film to talk about but i haven't seen this film in a long time wanted to revisit it and wanted to talk about it on the show so it's my show i'll do whatever the fuck i want and so i'm going to do this movie i could have gone with the falls i kind of wanted to do the falls i could have gone with belly of an arch of the architect i really wanted to see brian dennehy's big belly and everything but I didn't do it, so I went with uh, this one just because I remember it being so visually striking, and i that's about it. That's the only thing I remembered from it um, other than the final scene. So I was uh, really excited to revisit this one and experience the, gosh, the majesty of this film. Uh, so much pomp and circumstance for this film, which is really about such a low life character i could i forgot michael gambon's performances of albert he owns the screen throughout the entire film it feels like yeah he's larger than life in a way that i the first time i saw this i knew who he was and i had seen him in things but hadn't registered and this just i mean it's unforgettable what's well, the kind of role in which he was given free reign and there's not too much of a parameters, not too wide of a parameter of what he's expected to emote. He's 
a sociopath. And uh, that comes through very strongly, and he's really good at it. And this is something that I really love, the comic elements of his performance. And I don't know that everyone agrees that they're there, but I think they're just brilliant. But they'll make more sense to whoever is listening. They'll make more sense as we go. Well, we get a real theme throughout this whole film of eating. Obviously, this takes place primarily at a restaurant, but even the first line in the film is Gambon saying, you know, come on, open your mouth. And we get this great, well, theatrical opening. (laughs) First, though, we see these dogs basically eating what looks like carrion. And after that, we get this curtain that opens up that we'll get at the very end of it. And we kind of have our stage set with these trucks that roll out, these cars that come in, and this scene that plays out in what looks like a really large stage and it's it's like you can almost see the proscenium and seeing it on the small screen i really was having a hard time i had to rewatch it a few times and really missed having this on the big screen just to see all the things that were going on in this because it is so rich and so visually dense there's so many things happening in the frame at one time just even this opening scene where they're basically making this guy eat dog shit. I was like, oh, okay. So th- th- this, uh, it really starts off with a, uh, a culinary flair, as it were. Greenaway, throughout the film, or in a couple of places, makes the equation of shit and food. So right there, right off the top, you got shit equaling food, more or less. In the dialogue, he also, a little bit later in the film, draws that connection to sex as well which I think creates this disturbing but compelling triangle that he plays with throughout it. The naughty bits and the dirt and the dirty bits. Right. Yes. Well, even though there's four characters listed in the title with nary a comma between them, I was very surprised about that. I I was debating yesterday, like, Oh, is he going to use the Oxford comma? No, he doesn't use a comma at all. But anyway, that's, that's just me as the punctuation nerd, even though there's the four people in the title really comes down to the triangle and it comes down to albert georgina and michael michael's her lover georgina is the wife and albert is the thief so we do have the cook in there but he's not nearly the player that the other three are and we've got that triangle going on and then we've got the tricolor stuff happening i mean really there's four colors the outside world, when we go out in the outside world, it is primarily blue. As we move through the kitchen, it is green. Once we get into the dining room, we've got red. And then when we move into the loo, it's white. And the way that, you know, again, going back to sex and shit uh, as that combination, the first time that we see Michael and Georgina having sex, they're doing it in the loo. And that it is the most pristine place in the entire restaurant i mean even the kitchen the kitchen is so busy all the steam going off all the people moving around and it isn't until we get into the loo that we have what looks like a very heavenly place even though it's supposed to be one of the dirtiest places in the restaurant i interpret that as the white representing purity and from greenaway's perspective it could be that sex and bodily functions are pure because they're natural and everything else in the film, like in the dining area, it's all artifice. What is real, what is natural, is pure. And therefore, the bathroom's pure because it's used in the film for defecation and copulation, or attempted copulation. 
It's also really the only place where Georgina has her own space and she's not governed over by these imposed roles where the cook Richard sort of comes into that equation is if if you think of the bathroom as belonging to Georgina and the dining room as belonging to Albert and then the kitchen belongs to the cook and you know we don't get to see Michael's space until later, but it seems to be the only place where there's not this sort of rapid fire dialogue and there's not constant movement because as you mentioned, Greenaway is an extremely theatrical director and there's usually a lot going on in every frame, which is why I think it's worth watching all of his films multiple times. But the bathroom scenes are so well choreographed. I mean, it's mostly her by herself, but then you have these two or three other scenes where Albert comes in and sort of disrupts things. Yeah. It is interesting that her clothing from when she walks from the dining room, her dress is red. When she goes into the bathroom, it's white. Her dress becomes white and Michael's doesn't neither does uh, Albert's. So you're probably on the right track there. Michael is immune to the color scheme. No matter where he's at, he is always in brown. Even in his own space, and I wouldn't consider his space at the book depository to be brown. It seems almost more like an orange or rust or almost a golden color, not necessarily the brown drab. He sticks out like a sore thumb, even though brown, he should be fading into the background like one of the many paintings that are in the dining room. But yet he is sticking out so much because the dining room is so garish and so red. And here he is as this brown plain figure just sitting in the corner reading throughout so much of these dining room scenes. I read somebody, uh, an analysis where somebody equates the brown of the book depository as being a natural color like earth, dirt. It's equating that the book depository with the Garden of Eden. I can see that. And that's true, because once they get there, they just pretty much fuck like bunnies and eat the entire time. But he's also this, in terms of the connection to the color Earth, or to the brown being like an Earth-like color, he's also really the only stable presence in the film. Certainly he meets with an unfortunate end, which we'll discuss in a little bit, but... Other than that, he's really one of the only characters who's unaffected by Albert's tirades. Like, he's this sort of immovable force for a lot of the film. My God, Albert's tirades. I mean, there were moments in this film where I just wondered if Gambon was even taking a breath. His performance in this, he just, he's loud, he's crude. He never. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay. Round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No Shuts up. And it's just this patter that he has. He's this, uh, for people listening, he's this gangster and he's got this. It kind of reminds me of Ben Kingsley from Sexy Beast. He has this thick accent that is going on, and he's just the way that he puts on airs and the way that he follows around. The only person that can somewhat tame him is Richard the chef, because as he is going through and explaining menu items, then you've got Albert trying to say those things and just butchering them, just not understanding and just thinking that, that French, if it's, it, if it's said in French and with a French accent, it's got to be so much better than anything. I mean, he could be eating anything and just because it is French and coming from Richard's mouth and from Richard's uh, utensils, it is going to be so much better. And then he doesn't even understand. I mean, there's one point where he smacks George, Georgina because she says poisson and he thinks that she's saying pussy. And it's just like, oh, for fuck's sakes, Albert. He is just just the most base element that you could possibly get. Pâté d'alouette with the chicory sauce. Pâté d'alouette with the chicory sauce. Terrine de canton. Terrine de canton. Cold turkey with the lemon and basilica. Cold turkey with the lemon and basilica. Anchovies in garlic vinegar. It doesn't have to be cold. You've got gas. You've got gas, for God's sake. Cold chicken. Pâté d'alouette. Salade de langoustine. Gâteau de carotte et gruyère. You, you put them electrics right, Mitchell. Put them electrics right, or you don't eat. You don't eat. A hot meal for tonight, eh, Richard? Something special, please. I have about some, uh, some uh, les eaux d'oeuvres, uh, gâteau au poivres, uh, terrine, a filet lamb, a poison au uh, poi, poi, poi. It's poisson. What did you say, Josie? What did you say, Josie? What did you say? What did you say? What did you say? Poisson. The way he says profiteroles makes me almost cry with laughter every <laughs> time. Like, the more times I've seen the film, it just it sticks out so so much. But I was saying to somebody this week that who had never seen the film and trying to explain his performance, and I was saying that the thing it reminds me most of in terms of his verbal rhythm is Rosalind Russell and his girl Friday. It's like <laughs> that sort of speed that like you have to take a breath in the middle of them talking because it's just exhausting. <laughs> he reminds me too of like David Thewlis and Naked, you know, where he just is talking and it's this endless monologue. But most of the time, David Thewlis is alone in Naked, whereas this guy just he's holding court. And that's what the restaurant is to him when he's out there in that red room this is his domain and everyone needs to listen to him. Everybody needs to respect him. And he just tries to take over everything. Every conversation centers on him, no matter what he does or says, or how many people he offends. He just doesn't care because he is the, he's the cock of the walk when he's out there in in that red room. Yeah. It's really astounding how, like, I, I can't imagine how many takes some of those scenes must have gone on for, but he just sort of exists at the center of this universe and doesn't listen to anything anyone says unless he's trying to get a reaction out of them. Like the scenes where 
you know, he provokes some of his fellow gangsters or when he provokes Georgina, like he just really just could keep going and not even notice anyone else is there. It seems like unless somebody makes him feel insecure and then he explodes or, or he, he needs something like he wants. There's that moment where he has uh, one of his guys, um, uh, uh, Corey call in, dancing girls first he's asking for whores and then he changes his mind no it'll be dancing girls and he wants to have this floor show in there and he ends up humiliating this guy i love the the scene where so it's it's this guy uh william is one of the customer's names and as soon as he says his name is william then albert has been oh willie oh you got a wee willie there and he's just like starts humiliating this guy pouring soup over his head and just you know, kicks him out of the room, and it's just it's just an amazing balls-out performance that it gives. He just never stops. He's a force of nature on screen, to the point where he's just like, oh my god, is this... What is happening here? It just feels like overwhelming. He is so vociferous throughout the entire thing. You are in the way of the floor, shot. You're gonna have to move. We're not moving. We're in the middle of our meal. I'm gonna eat. You can finish your soup, eh? Yeah, after all, you don't want to get trampled on, do you? Hold him, hold him. Yeah, as if you didn't take my advice. All that lovely food, Richard will be disappointed. Now, you're going to have to eat in the kitchen like naughty little children. Hey, hey what is your name? Hey, what did you say? Did I hear you say William? Well, <laughs> naughty little Willie, tiny little Willie. How would you like to be spanked on your big fat bottom? As fascinating for me, one of the things I find fascinating is that there really aren't any backstories to any of these people. So you don't, we know that Albert is this guy in this place and he's running this real estate. We don't know why. We don't know who he is, really, what he's done to get into this position where he can just throw people around. And it leaves him ripe for metaphor. And that's one way that uh, I can't help but see him metaphorically. I would definitely agree with that. And I think that applies to so many of Greenaway's major characters. Of course, as I see a gangster sitting in a restaurant, I immediately think of Goodfellas, which came out just the next year, and this whole thing about, Paulie, you should come into the restaurant business with me. This is a classy place. I mean, look at the layout. When you've been in there a million times, you know what it looks like. I mean, it, Tommy taking over this fucking joint is like putting a silk hat on a, on a pig. I mean, I don't mean no disrespect on Henry, but that, that's the way it is. I know you're his friend. Uh, I'm begging you. What can I say? I, what am I going to do? What, what, what do you want from me? Okay. I don't know what. I don't know nothing about the restaurant business. Nothing. All I know is to sit down and order a meal. I don't know how to make a restaurant. No, uh, not for you. It's just a place to hang. You know, I mean, the chef is great. You got to, the fucking shows are good. There's a lot of who is coming in here all the time. I like to here. help you out. Look, what, what do you want from me? What am I going to do? You know anything about this fucking restaurant business? He knows everything about it. I mean, he's in a joint 24 hours a day. I mean, another another fucking few, few minutes, it could be a stool. That's how often he's in there. You understand? You want me to be your partner? Yeah. That's what you're trying to tell me. You want me to be partner? Yeah, what the fuck you think I'm talking about, Paulie? Please, come on. You light a fire. <laughs> right, right. You're right. There is no backstory to these characters. We pretty much joined them mid-session. I mean, even that, that opening scene where they're making this guy eat dog shit, it's like, 
who is this guy? What has he done to offend? I don't think we ever really get the story of that. I mean, we're pretty much joined in action and off we go from there. I think the only thing that really kind of you know stays there from that opening is those two trucks that they drive in where eventually the food in them starts rotting. And that kind of plays a part, part later on in the film. But is, again, why are these two trucks here? What's happening? Why are all these? I, I can assume that the dogs are outside uh, because of you know the scraps of food and they're just kind of feral animals. But yeah, we're just diving right in. I mean, what what's the relationship of, of Mitchell, the Tim Roth character, to the Albert character? What's the relationship when later on we get this whole scene where Albert is really showing off for these other, I guess, gangsters? I mean, I assume that these guys are gangsters, but I'm wondering if they're like other factions or whatnot, one of them uh, being Ian Dury of Ian Dury and the Blockheads, which I was very happy to see. It's like, who are these guys? What do they have to do with anything? But at the same time, I don't really care. I'm just enjoying the show. You brought up the opening scene, and there's some things that struck me right away. or Early on in the film, they go from the outside and the tracking shots, which are really significant. A tracking shot from the outside, through the kitchen, and into uh, the dining room. Kind of like, to me, traces. It's like a crash course in evolution. You know, you're going... From the primitive with the smearing of the dog shit on this guy and it's human debasement and it's, it's caveman stuff. Then you get into the next area where labor, man, is it's starting to create things. Or art. At the cook, you can see the cook as artist. Um, and then the dining room, which is all artifice and supposed to be a high form of civilization. And the tracking shot, what a tracking shot does is it shows that there's more to the world than what you see in a stationary frame. The world continues past that frame. So we're continuing, and then all we see are these walls that separate these different classifications of society, the laborer and the elite, if you will. And with the outside, there is a shot that goes from the outside through the kitchen and in, into the dining room, Seems like a crash course in, in evolution, as far, from what I can tell. It's kind of like uh, the bone going into the air in, in 2001. <laughs> <laughs> and it's done by one of the great cinematographers, Sasha Vierney, who shot most of Greenaway's major films, but also worked with Zhuavsky on La Femme Publique. And... If you watch a Greenaway film back-to-back with that one, you can see almost the exact same tracking shots that have all this sort of layered stuff going on in the background and the foreground. And I mean, he worked with Alain René, and just his work is astounding. And I think that's part of what makes this so beautiful. But also, I I mean, I kind of gave you shit for not having seen more Greenaway films, but I think... To pick one for a podcast episode, I think this is the right one because it's such a great place to start. And part of that is the cinematography. But I saw all of all of Greenaway's early films. I kind of lost touch after Prospero's books, but I'd seen most of the stuff before that. And they were also visually striking, which seems appropriate because he's basically a painter. Now, I don't know, Sam, if you agree with this or not, but I, I think he's a painter who makes films 
much like Matthew Barney, uh, Julian Schnabel. Uh, I don't see him as a filmmaker. His aesthetics are not geared towards traditional narrative, and I think he sees it as a, a canvas upon which to paint as opposed to tell stories. No, I would totally agree with that. And I think that, I mean, he started out as a painter. And I think that's part of why I love him so much. And I think that's also part of why, so he reached kind of this, I don't want to call it a rough spot because I think that's a little unfair, but the sort of excitement that you can find in his films from the 80s and 90s, I think he sort of lost people for a little while. And it seemed like maybe he lost them because he stopped being as excited. But I think the way he dealt with it as a director was to take a little break and do these art installations and do things like the Tulsa Looper suitcases, which sort of also like the pillow book, it kind of it's almost like a mixed media film. Like, I don't, I don't know how else to describe it, but I love that he's like that. Well, I think that cook thief wife lover is the closest to a traditional narrative that you can find. You don't need uh, to be well-versed in literature, painting, etc., to get the story of this film and to follow it through. Whereas in most of the other cases, uh, it helps to be a yeah. little more. Yeah. No, definitely. I think this and the pillow book have, they, they do have a ton of art and literary references, but, and musical references, but they're really the only two that have this kind of narrative that will make sense for people who can't follow those. Yeah. Because there is a very strong narrative thread. If anything, there's almost too much narrative to this. I mean, it is a little bit over two hours it's interesting how he uses menus to divide up the story for to believe the menus. Basically, this whole thing takes place over like a week and a half or something, right? But just the, the these nice placeholders to introduce us to these different scenes. And I'm sure that if I was a smarter person, I could probably pause the film, look at the... Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vdw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus menus and see what the the menu items themselves have to do with the scene that we're about to watch. But unfortunately, I'm not that smart, so... I'm not a smart man. I don't know if anybody's actually sat down and done that and done a case study of what the menus uh, have in relationship to the film, but uh, hopefully somebody has done their doctoral thesis on that one. I've seen the... Uh, I see the menu, the days of the week being represented by menu pages as being... A, a really, or for a change, an organic 
formalist device that Greenaway uses, because in his prior films up to that point, he used Drowning by Numbers, which uses numbers one through a hundred. And you can see the numbers on the screen occasionally, periodically placed all over the place. Uh, in Zed and Two Knots, he goes through the alphabet uh, representations of each of the letters at some point or other. He's very much into games in that way or formalist devices of categorizing. And um, it's difficult to understand unless you have a, a guidebook to go through. But I, I found the, the menu pages to be a really organic and understandable device to, if you're going to do framing or categorizing in any way, this is, this is okay. This is fine. The other stuff, the letters and the numbers just throw me off. No, I love them. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I, maybe I should write the the OCD person's Peter Greenaway guidebook. (laughs) There you go. No, no, I, that's one thing I thought about. Peter Greenway is that he must be OCD to a certain extent or another. And that type of thing, the numbering and the lettering in the other movies, uh, I mean, it's fine. And I, I appreciate that, but it makes you think about them. And I, I know that Greenway loves using alienating devices. He wants you to always be aware you're watching a movie and that this is not real life. We, I know. And that's one thing that the tracking shots do because makes you kind of look at it theatrically, like you said, as three three different stages almost. But I have a problem in that I start thinking about what do these numbers mean? Do they correspond to anything specifically? And if so, what is that? And why should I worry about it? I guess it's good then that you didn't take apart the menus and say, now what do uh, (laughs) Palm Frites have to do with this particular No, it's a menu! (laughs) Well, but it's also... I think he meticulously plans everything out. So the in the case of the menu, it's like you're saying a really organic, nice way to basically split the film up into scenes the way that you would divide a play into scenes. And he does do that earlier, like you said, but I would agree that here it's a bit more cohesive. Like once you see a new menu page, it's clear that we've moved on to a totally new scene. Whereas when that happens, it, it's closer to that in the Draftsman's contract where the scenes are broken up by basically a character is hired to draw an estate and to draw the sort of outside landscape of this estate and sort of uncovers this murder mystery as he goes. But each scene is kind of broken up with you getting to look at a different drawing And it's much less distracting than what you're talking about with the devices he uses in a Z and two knots, uh, belly of an architect and drowning by numbers. But I think it's his way of saying like, okay, now we're moving on to the next act. And draftsman's contract is similarly a a fluid narrative, relatively speaking. I don't know. I've heard a lot of people complain that they had trouble following it. I agree with you that I think it's not difficult to follow, but kind of like what Mike was saying, Greenaway really doesn't give a shit about feeling this need to provide all this backstory for the characters. Like his films are always really densely packed with a couple main characters and then just a ton of side characters. And I think that's his way of sort of saying we're in this part of the story now and it doesn't matter what happened before. And if something matters, he'll tell you like the way Georgina 
eventually explains her backstory. I guess we could really stretch that metaphor, and this would fall apart under any sort of scrutiny, so I'm really hoping nobody actually goes and looks at this, but you mentioned the Garden of Eden before as being you know, towards the end with the book depository. You could almost say that these these calendar days on the menus is almost the creation period, and then once we get done with that, then here we are in the Garden of Eden. Again, please, nobody try to look at that one because i know i'm full of shit with it but what what did you say mike there's no better movie to be full of shit at than this film i'm not a smart man yeah you can't say things like that because now i feel compelled to do them (laughs) 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 and this is why i love greenaway so much because his sort of meticulous organizing of things in patterns i find very calming (laughs) (laughs) there you go (laughs) which probably makes me sound like a crazy person, but that's okay. Well, I want to talk about those tracking shots more because one of the things that I really want to get across to the listener is the whole idea of we're tracking. So there are are shots that are tracking from the outside. And this is very much like that old um, sound stagey type of thing, or could be seen as such of, uh, of that where we're on the outside and we're tracking across and we get a break as far as the wall goes. We move from outside into the kitchen and then we get another break as we move into the uh, the restaurant proper. Now, those are not real breaks. We're not actually on this set where we're moving from one to the other to the other. And the reason why we can say that with uh, any sort of certainty is that as we move from one area to another, people's outfits change. And it's amazing that we go from the restaurant proper where red is that theme into the kitchen and Albert would be wearing a red sash. He moves into the kitchen. Now it's a green sash. He moves outside. Now it's a blue sash. And to think that that is going on and to look at the performances and to think about the amount of craftsmanship that must have gone into all of the lighting of this, all of the decorations, all of the costumes, but then to think about the acting and to think that you have to do a costume change to move from one area to another and that you have to maintain that same demeanor, the same uh, action that you're doing from one set to another, it's pretty remarkable and really a testament to the greatness of these actors. I mean, it's no, you know, small matter to be able to do that and it's no small coincidence that we're talking about the the smaller characters that these are some actors that are pretty heavy hitters i mean you look at this and it's like tim roth looks like a freaking baby in this but the the one guy that always stands out to me is oh and i had to look up how you pronounce his name because i've oh karen hines yeah karen hines (laughs) i always thought it was like a soft c so i that's uh, i've never actually like talk to the guy or anything. So I'm glad that I had to look it up. So Karen Hines, this guy, when you, he's barely recognizable as him in this, because he's got a beard, he's got long hair. But if you look up that actor and, uh, and you spell it C I A R A N H I N D S, you see this guy and you go, Oh shit. I know this guy. He's been in a ton of stuff. If you watch game of Thrones, he's on there for a while there. He made a cottage industry of being the Soviet premier or the Soviet diplomat. And so many things for a while, I actually thought this guy was Russian because he was that character in so many different movies. Chechnya is an internal affair. What we do there should be none of your concern. 
He's amazing. A lot of people, I think, will probably also know him from Rome, where he plays Julius Caesar. But I, at first, thought that he was someone else, like another British actor. Uh, he's he's Irish. But because he, like you said, he has this beard and this long hair. But some of my favorite dialogue in the entire movie is directed at him. He, he gets so much abuse from Albert and at one point. I think you mentioned this earlier when he tries to, Albert decides that he wants him to hire some girls and he delivers this amazing line. Like you couldn't organize a rape in a brothel, (laughs) 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 which I know probably shouldn't be funny, but it's just his delivery. He's so abusive, but in such imaginative ways, (laughs) poor Corey. I was struck earlier today. I watched the film and he's at the beginning of the film. Uh, he asks somebody, uh, like a young boy, for a towel, and the the boy hands it over to him, and he immediately slaps the kid with a towel. It's like, <laughs> what? Well, he did what you wanted him to do, but but he still has to abuse him because he's there. <laughs> well, the the Asian guy who brings him water to wash his hands after he got shit all over it, and he's looking at him like, I never liked that Chinese food, but looking at you now, I like it even less. <laughs> Everybody, there's no one safe from this guy's insults, except maybe the cook. Yes, and barely. He could humiliate Don Rickles. I mean, he would. (laughs) 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 The new Mr. Warmth. Michael Gambon, fantastic. Just like I said, I mean, he... He feasts on the the uh, things brought out by Richard. He feasts on the scenery, and I mean that with all respect because he is just such a terror in this film. And to because now having you know a, a wee one in the house, I'm watching the Harry Potter movies a lot. And I'm just like, oh yeah, Dumbledore too. You know, I know him from that, of course. I know him from this, and then I know him from what was it, The Singing Detective? And could you get three more different roles? for this guy i don't think so so when he first when when that the first hair so i guess he's in the he starts out in the third harry potter movie i think so when that came out i went to see it not realizing that richard harris had died and that there would be a new gandalf and as he comes on screen i forget who i was watching with but i was like no, Albert can <laughs> Albert can't be or can't can't be can't be Dumbledore. <laughs> he did do the narr the narration on Hail Caesar. He's the narrative voiceover. Yeah. Did he really? Yeah. He has a moment earlier in the film where uh Albert does do something that's kind of reasonable, rational. He tips the boy, Pup, I think his name is, the character's name is. After Pup sings this this song, I believe it's the Miserere uh, piece by Allegri. Uh, I was miserable after listening to that so many times. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, I, it, my wife was just like, if I have to hear that kid sing one more time. Oh, I'm no. <laughs> but but it, it, it's one of those things that in the since he puts it in there, you have to wonder if it has a certain kind of significance, like the painting in the dining room, which seems to like loom over many scenes in the film. So I think the narrative significance, so I think it's twofold. I think it means something for Albert's character, and it also means something for uh, the boy's character. For, for Albert, 
it seems like the only thing he re- really respects and the thing that sort of humanizes him is that he worships what he sees as high culture. And that's, I think, the reason why he won't abuse the chef is because he sees the chef as an artist and he sees that the chef possesses some sort of knowledge or some sort of skill set that he himself doesn't have that is totally foreign to him. And so it becomes a sort of currency. And I think. The boy is basically, he doesn't have to sing different songs because Albert doesn't know any differently. And I think the boy becomes such a more pathetic character because he only sings that song. It's not like he's really a talented singer who has this whole repertoire that he can just draw on. I mean, he's a serving boy in a kitchen. And I love that we don't really get a backstory for why he knows that song. But it is something that would be sung by a castrati choir. So, you know, young boys who are basically going to permanently be in those upper vocal registers. But it's so somber for a dining room that I think that's why it doesn't bother me that he just sings it over and over again because I took it to be humorous. Like, it's so out of place. <laughs> well, also, and then the lyrics kind of lend themselves to some of the actions because you have, he, he talks about washing me, right, is, is so much of the, the song. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And we get several scenes of people being washed clean of filth. I mean, we have that opening where we've seen the guy get uh, covered in dog excrement. And when he comes in, kitchen staff is washing him off and gives him this glass of wine, which is nice uh, a nice bookend because we have that glass of wine there. And then we have uh, a very painfully poured glass of wine at the very end of the film. And then we have that washing scene. We have the washing of Michael and Georgina at his place after they've gotten into that truck of rancid meat. So there is this theme of washing throughout so much of this and then that they have sex in the washing room, I suppose you could say as well. Definitely. And there's a weird theme of sort of supplication and religious purification that kind of runs through it that it's, it's almost like they're sort of collectively being cleansed for Albert's sins, but because it is a revenge tragedy that doesn't last forever. Yeah, and this is a, what would we call it, a Jacobean revenge tragedy? I mean, Greenway has said that he has based a, a lot of this on Tizipiti, She's a Whore, which I am, un, again, unfortunately not familiar with. One of the best titles ever, but I have not seen the play or read the play or seen a, a movie adaptation of it, so I'm not quite sure how that plays out. But really, at the end of the day, this is, to your point, Sam, a revenge narrative and so much of this, I talked about the the pacing of it, so much of this is just the building, building, building. When is Albert going to find out? Because we know. We know he has to find out at some point. And then what is that explosion going to be like? Because we've seen Albert so unhinged just in day to day, you know, him walking around. 
what's it going to be like when he finds out that Georgina has been stepping out on him. And we see just the bruises and the marks on her and the abuse that he heaps upon her, just this whole like smoking, anti-smoking narrative that he has throughout the whole thing. And just so much abuse that he's heaping on her physically and verbally. What's that going to be when he finds out that she's stepping out on him? So it just really is this slow burn as we go through this whole thing until that moment. And then it's interesting that it it is very much a, uh, a, 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 it feels like a play moment where we have the one woman who is supposed to be having sex with Ian Dury look into the wrong room at the wrong time. And that's really what unravels the whole thing. In terms of Tis Pity She's a Whore, quickly, it's really only loosely inspired. Like, it's not, you can't sort of match one-for-one plot points, even remotely. It's just the sort of over-the-top elements of revenge. And I think the love story, definitely, sort of the illicit love story, but also this sort of theme of one character who needs to have obsessive control over another character. And, I mean... As we've talked about, I I think it kind of extends to all aspects of his dining room kingdom, but she's kind of the jewel in his crown, at least in his eyes, because she does sort of have a window into that world of culture that he so desperately wants to belong to. It's also another reference to a work of art that was from the 17th century, which uh, the painting that's featured in the dining room is 17th century. The whole Jacobean era was primarily 17th century. The play and and uh, the proto-capitalistic system, the restaurant's called La Hollandaise. Another reference to Dutch, like the painting is Dutch. And the 17th century proto-capitalist system that was in place in Holland in the 17th century, it relates somehow. We're, we're supposed to find different ways into the film and and read it from various different angles. Totally agreed. And I actually, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know this for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if the menu system is meant to model sort of an upper class banquet menu. If you take it as a whole and rather than just sort of split it into nights, I will have to look into that. Where does the Jewishness fit into this? There's this really anti-Semitic feel to this movie because and I'm not saying that as a a bad thing I'm saying that Albert is anti-Semitic because they make such a point of calling out Michael the bookseller as being Jewish and they refer to him a few times as the Jew that almost felt well almost felt a little um, you know Merchant of Venice Venice ish to me but I, I was just really curious where we felt that the Jewishness of this character is it just that he is so different is that he's bookish and that he is almost even more of a threat because he has this difference about him. Well, at one point, Albert says that 80% of the people here are Jews. So it could just be he's anti-Semitic, but he's anti-people. So so he equates everybody with being Jewish because he hates Jews. <laughs> I really don't know specifically what I can get from the narrative or what I can get from the dialogue that distinguishes where Judaism is an issue in any way. Maybe I'm just not seeing it. That's another thing that you could draw back to 16th and 17th century Europe is it's sort of through art and literature and drama. It kind of it's it's sneaky 
and I think, like you mentioned with Merchant of Venice, would seem sort of strange and very un-PC to us, but it's sort of a way to codify otherness, and usually the the character, the quote-unquote Jewish characters, don't really have anything to do with actual Judaism, but they're sort of depicted in these kind of monstrous ways where they have very specific looks to them. And usually, I don't know that bookishness is would specifically be it, but I do think there's this connection to education and intelligence and that would set those kinds of characters apart from the common man. And I mean, definitely that's the case with Shylock. Well, and of course, taking it back to Shakespeare again, the revenge plot of this eventually ends up in a very Titus Andronicus uh, territory here. And of course, this whole thing of, I, I love that we get the the fate of Michael as soon as Albert finds out about this, he starts ranting, raving, I'm going to cook him and I'm going to eat him. Or wait, I'll kill him and I'll eat him. That's what he says. I'll kill him and I'll eat him. I was thinking of John McClane from Die Hard. And again, going back to mouths, I mean, even to Pup's fate is him being fed all of these buttons. And just so many times where we're seeing people having things shoved into their mouths and that as being a, a punishment. And it's very appropriate that that's the, I mean, he, it isn't shoved into his mouth, but it's very appropriate that that is Albert's fate at the end of the day is this whole idea of having Michael cooked and fed to him. And it is one of the greatest revenge ends, I think, in uh, in cinema. I think it is a wonderful way for Albert to get his comeuppance. Well, that's what he does to Michael, too. He forces him to eat pages from his yes. books. Yes. And that is definitely a thing that shows up throughout a lot of revenge tragedy in some really nasty ways that I think goes back to Roman culture, where there was this idea of sort of ironic justice where if you committed a crime a similar crime would be sort of enacted as your punishment in all sorts of kinds of nasty ways and i i mean i know that people like that uh julie tamor titus andronicus adaptation but i think this is the best sort of cinematic version of a revenge tragedy that you can find even if it isn't a direct adaptation it's just so good. Even as you're saying that, I'm thinking of, wasn't there a scene in Caligula, in, in, um, in Tinto Brass's Caligula, where someone is forced to drink so much wine, and then eventually they split him open and all the wine comes pouring back out? Yep. And that, I mean, is based on real events. Like when when they would have executions of sort of criminals and prisoners of war in the arena, criminals tended to be punished in a way that paralleled their crimes. So, you know, as you said, it's perfect that that's, that that's how Albert goes, but you kind of don't see it coming. At least I don't think you do the first time you see the film. I think it probably would have earned an NC-17. I don't remember if we mentioned this, but I think Henry and June is the first NC-17 movie or one of the first. And I Sounds saw right. that I saw that not too long after the first time I saw this movie and was so disappointed because I felt like it was, I mean, I was, you know, 
2021 and was hoping to see something exciting and racy and was so disappointed and just kind of wondered how it got such a worse rating than this film. Not, you know, not knowing at the time that that system hadn't been in place yet. I love Fred Ward. I love him to death. But all I remember from that movie is like his fat naked ass. (laughs) There are beautiful women in Henry and June, but all I remember is Fred Ward's naked ass. Mike, what is wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) Although it's funny that you mention that because throughout a lot of Greenaway's films, he has a ton of nudity in a way that feels like it does. I think here very natural and sort of erotic and non-exploitative, but He also uses some really beautiful women like Helen Mirren, but his portrayals of people tend to feel very natural to me. Like they don't have to lose weight before the role, whether they're male or female, and they don't have to be lit a certain way. And I just, I really like that. And that's one of the things I liked so much about this the first time I saw it. Like they look like regular people, I guess is what I mean. I like that Albert gets upset that Michael is his age. He's like, if it it was a younger man, I would have, you know, accepted it a little bit more, but no, he's got to be forties close to my age or he is my age and he's ranting and raving. And yeah, Michael is just, he's a regular dude. He's just a, you know, a schlubby kind of guy. I mean, the actor that portrays him is fantastic, but I will say that as a, you know, a, a human being, he's just like, okay, he's just a normal dude. And yeah, none of the, um, the, the nudity is titillating or salacious. This is not shot like a soft core porn film at all. It is just here. We have these two people enjoying each other, enjoying each other's bodies. And the scene where they are in with all of the, the dead poultry and we have all the feathers and everything, that is some of the nicest nudity that I've seen just because these people are so natural with one another and they're just enjoying themselves. And that's the first time that they actually have a conversation, which is really nice that, it, that we realize that, that, that we really haven't heard from Michael very much at all throughout this film and that we haven't seen them have a real conversation until this moment. And now he's afraid that if he speaks for too long, she'll lose interest. It's so romantic, though. It is. It is. It is so sweet. There are so many moments, so many great moments. The the moments of them in bed at the book depository and when Pup brings the, the food. It's just like this It seems like a perfect evening. Yes, there's danger looming outside and eventually bad things happen to Pup. But it is such a romantic scene inside that book depository. It is just like if I could spend an evening with someone I love uh, surrounded by books and, and great food. Sign me up, dude. I'm right there. I agree. It's unusually sweet within the context of this film. And that's one of the things I love so much about Greenaway in general is that even though it's not always as romantic and sweet as it is here, he's a genius at depicting these really, really emotionally intimate scenes in unconventional ways without all this sort of typical dialogue of here are my feelings for you. It's like you can see in that scene you were talking about with where they're basically in the sort of poultry cellar. It's so intimate, but they say so little, but it still perfectly conveys their feelings for each other. And they say nothing to each other up to that point. 
And that emphasizes the, you know, the whole idea of just a natural coming together of two people. That wanton carnality that they've expressed to one another. Because again, we don't know how long this relationship has been going on. And it is surprising for me, at least the first time I see this and I go, wow, they haven't spoken to each other yet. This whole affair that they've been carrying out has just been wordless and has just been sex from here up until this point. Pretty fantastic. But he also makes it feel, and probably not everyone would agree with me because I know that there are plenty of people who think he's really pretentious and so on and so forth. But I felt like it was really, even the first time I saw this, I felt like it was really believable. And I think he sort of achieves this mostly through Helen Mirren's performance and his portrayals of Georgina. But it becomes clear that she's so desperate for any kind of intimacy and any kind of affection, even, that you can see how she gets in this relationship, even when there's no dialogue. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, the first from the moment you realize that she's his wife, you know, she's perfectly excused for running off in any direction and finding anyone. Yeah. Why you got to be smoking all the time, Georgina? (laughs) (laughs) I brought you your profiteroles. (laughs) I've visited Lou after you've been in there and had a tinkle. Yeah, he tries to humiliate her so many. Uh, that, so that's actually the thing that I think makes this so heart wrenching is that without being over the top about it, it's such an affecting portrayal of domestic abuse. And some of those scenes are really hard to watch. Well, especially when she shows up and she's got the big marks on her face. It's just like, oh, just how can you dare touch Helen Mirren? Dane I know. Helen Mirren. one of the most exquisite creatures who has ever and continues to walk the earth. This was the first time was seeing the movie back in 1989 was the first time I'd ever seen her in a film. I know she had done prior work, but it was the first exposure I had of her. And she really got to me. (laughs) That's all I can say. I was really affected by her and I thought she was hot. And she just gets better with age. She does. Uh, So I had seen just before I watched this, I saw Caligula for the first time. So this was the first time I saw her really give a a complex performance. And it does in a way like her performance in Caligula is really hot, but it's hotter in this movie. I think because you see how brilliant she is. Yes. Yes, definitely. I talked about how this movie wasn't that lascivious, but that moment when she tears open her uh her outfit and it's that um the stockings and garters and uh lingerie type thing that she has on i'm just like okay yeah all right that works oh that 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 black bra that see-through oh oh, my goodness (laughs) (laughs) we've we've devolved into other podcasts now (laughs) no but she is so hot man she is so hot (laughs) but she is i think I think it sort of makes it okay because I'm agreeing with you. <laughs> but, but Thank I, you. I also, <laughs> but I also love that when she does that, it's because she's using any means at her disposal to try to convince Richard, the chef, to cook Albert. And I think she knows what a horrifying request that is, that she's sort of bringing all of her 
self-perceived tools to the table to get the job done because she's so determined that she's going to get the ultimate revenge, but it's still sexy. (laughs) Greenaway does that throughout his films. He has a number of female characters who either get revenge or get the upper hand. I mean, it happens in things like drowning by numbers is that's basically the whole theme of the movie. It happens in, uh, the pillow book in Zed and two knots, but the women are never, it never seems like he's exploiting them. It always seems like they're the ones who have the power and they're not doing something because they have to, they're doing something because they want to. Drowning by numbers. If I'm not, if my memory serves me well, uh, it's three different women with the same name drowning their husbands. And they're That's all a- related to each other. They're all <laughs> three generations of a family from okay. what I remember. Yeah. It's yeah. like, th- it's like the grandmother, the mother and the daughter, but yes, they all drown their good for nothing husbands. Although you get this great sense about halfway through the film that maybe the husbands don't really have it coming and killing them is a bit excessive, <laughs> like <it's... laughs> but I like that he has that twist. As a really nice documentary. Um, it was weird because it was kind of a documentary, but at the same time, they showed one of his short films and they showed uh, his film from 1991, A Walk Through Prospero's Library, um, as well. But in that, he described himself as a feminist. So I was very glad to hear that. And it didn't sound like just lip service either. And then also to hear him say that when he does these films, everything is written down and there's no ad libbing on the set. And so then just to think, oh my God, all of that stuff from Albert was written down on the page. That's pretty amazing. And written by him. Yeah. Which to me is, so I, I generally have a bit of an issue with directors who write their own scripts because I think it's so difficult to get it right. But he, and he certainly not all of his films are perfect, but they're all really interesting. And it just amazes me that he can write, that he can set up these sort of amazing painterly shots like we were talking about earlier and have all these historical references and cultural references and write dialogue like that. Yeah. I'm definitely going to become a stalker at some point. (laughs) (laughs) The only thing, the the stream of obscenity that the Albert character uh, mouths is the only thing I can think of comparable to that uh, for anyone who hasn't seen the film would be uh, a full metal jacket. The, (laughs) Oh, the Harley Army character? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I can actually kind of see that. And he does that same humiliating and tearing people down. Like the whole idea of, of uh, the little Willie thing when that guy's name is William. I mean, that so reminds me of the, the sergeant going after, you know, private, uh, private pile and private snowball and just immediately trying to find the weakness and just latch onto it and the thing that will humiliate them. Yeah, and I think it does have touches of what you were talking about earlier with Joe Pesci's character in Goodfellas when he gets on those tirades and he just seems really coked up. But Michael Gambon never seems coked up in this movie. He always just, I don't know how to describe it, it's, but it's not that sort of rabid sense. its He's like that 24 hours a day and there's a certain malicious, manipulative quality behind it where he's sort of always in control even when he's torturing people as he does a child even 
about three quarters of the way through the film. Yeah, he never feels like he's teetering on the edge. It feels like he is very much in control at all times. And that obviously is what he wants, is to have that control. Near the end of the film, uh, who's the uh, the character's uh, elderly woman who sits next to Albert at, at one point in the film? It seems like it could be his mother or something. I don't know, but it's an elderly woman who becomes part of the group there. She's wearing a red dress and... Right. But, no, I know who you mean. I'm not sure what her yeah. relationship is with her. Well, anyway, when Helen Mirren comes back in, just before she introduces the corpse to uh, Albert, the lady says, where have you been? Where have you been? Uh, Albert's been so upset. And I'm wondering if that's like another level of, of upset or is it just the same level of upset? Because if it's another level of upset, it may be good that we don't see it. Yeah, and he's also given these weird these weird scenes where he's sort of and you can tell he's faking but where he's pathetic and he begs her forgiveness and it's just ugh. It's it's so good, but so so bad. Well, yeah, it's that total domestic abuse thing that you brought up before as far as like, "Oh, I'm so sorry, honey. I'll change. I'll be better." And you know that as they're doing that, they're just putting on a pair of brass knuckles behind their back. I was wondering what you guys thought about metaphorical viewing of this film in terms of like, because I have read analysis of the film that equates the wife, and this is made in 1989, the wife equals England, the thief equals Margaret Thatcher, her lover equals the uh, quiet opposition to Thatcherism, and the cook equals either labor or art. And I think that can play through up to a certain extent. I've read the same thing about this is an allegory for Thatcherism, and I can see it, but it really pisses me off because <laughs> I feel like it's really reductive. And so one of my favorite things about Greenaway is that there are so many different things going on and so many different layers of meaning. It kind of reminds me of somebody like Ajay Zhuavsky, where... You can read any number of things into it, but you can't really say, okay, this one reading is the most obvious one. And so, I don't know. I, I think that's there. You could definitely see elements of that, but I think it's, I don't know. I think it's too basic and it's, it misses a lot if you just, if you just read it that way. If you're just focusing on that, I get your point because it does seem to be a multi-layered text. But uh, as a very basic way of looking at it, it becomes kind of timeless then because you can apply the same reading to make it apply to whatever time you're in. Like, for example, if we had, I don't know, a world leader who was like loud and vulgar. Imagine that. Hypothetically. I'm just hypothetically saying. And, uh, you know. I'm tired of your Obama bashing. That's just my two cents there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I, I definitely can see it. I mean, I don't know. I, I think he tends to not be an overtly political filmmaker, though he is certainly critical of these sort of class-related hierarchies and power structures and very critical of capitalism. But I think there's a little bit of contradiction there because he is so obsessed with 
art and culture and his films are not accessible and they're sort of, I don't want to say they're not accessible on purpose, but he knows how difficult they are and doesn't ever apologize for that. For me, he's always been a tough nut to crack because on the one hand, he says things like trust the work, not the author, you know? And, but when you watch a film, you wonder what intentions are. And that always leads back to the author's intent for various well, different elements. It does. I think this is becomes a complicated discussion when you're talking about cinema, because even though he's clearly an auteur, it's a film is never just one person. So I think you if, if you want to do that whole like what what is the author's intent? I don't know. I think I think that makes it complicated. Certainly, I think with more overtly political filmmakers, it's easier to say, okay, this is a response to this, like someone like Godard. But I I don't think he's that. I mean, he obviously, he's English, he's lived all over the world. So he's informed, he's very well informed. So I'm sure that he hated Thatcher as as much as any reasonable person now hates Bush. Or, oh my God, (laughs) I, I I can't even bring myself to say his name anymore we know who <laughs> so you're, I think, we know who you're talking yeah. about <laughs> i think my brain has like resorted back to, <laughs> to the good to old days bad days <laughs> <laughs> yes but so i don't know i i think it's there but i think it's more humanist than specifically political to a certain era i think the best works leave themselves open for so many interpretations and this one definitely does i mean you can easily go in here and say okay well this represents art and commerce the art being the the chef and the commerce being the gambon character and just the way that they have this relationship and what a philistine albert is at the end of the day Uh, you, you can look at it and say okay we have this thread running through here of the french revolution the book michael's favorite book and the way that uh he is reading it all the time and how he's tracing the history of the french revolution with all the books in his depository and then even albert talking about napoleon and uh that uh you know napoleon like seafood and all these things so you can you can definitely pull it apart in so many different directions and i find that that's to me, one of the great things is that you can read so many different things into this. I mean, we've talked about that countless times on so many shows, especially when I'm you know, spouting off about Hitchcock and stuff. It's just like you can bring so many things to this and interpret things in so many different ways. And I really appreciate that about this work is that we've talked – a lot about surfacey stuff, just about the machinations of the actual story, about the characters, without getting into that metaphorical realm. I'm not afraid to get into that metaphorical realm, but I just appreciate that there's so much stuff to, and I hate to say it, to chew on in this film. I was just regurgitating what I was thinking. That's <laughs> All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about Peter Greenaway. Hello, I'm Dame Judi Dench, Her Royal Highness, the Honorary Queen of the British Isles, parts of the Caribbean, and I have a scarf consortium in the basement of Harrods. I'm just here to tell you all about this wonderful, relatively new podcast from the After Movie Diner. There's movie discussion, interviews with independent film directors, music, and abject silliness. First thing, every Monday, just in time for your sweaty and stressful commute... 
or like me, maybe you're sprawled seductively on a chaise long waiting for a really good breakfast. Go to amdpodcast.blogspot.com or search for After Movie Diner on iTunes, TalkShoe, Podbean, or Facebook and get that dose of goodness that you've been looking for. For all your sleepless nights, long commutes, and lonely weekends, maybe spent dressed in a tutu playing checkers with a machine eating Nutella straight from the jar, it's the After Movie Diner Podcast, filled with all the B-movie vitamins your body deserves. Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts is a weekly podcast that discusses grindhouse and exploitation cinema. Your three hosts, Mike. It's a quick... <laughs> Thank you. Come again. Not racist at all. Mark. If you bend over and you have what is essentially a pubic cottontail coming out of the crack of your ass, you need to do some goddamn grooming. And listener favorite, Iris. I do not have sex with that horse. <laughs> will make you question your own political correctness while laughing at theirs. Episodes drop every Sunday and can be found by searching BB and BC Podcasts via Lipson, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and iHeartRadio. You can also listen to episodes directly from the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. as they discuss music-related movies. iTunes, Facebook, or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com. The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, proudly resents, and you're listening to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know, it's messed up, right? We are back, and we were talking about the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover. And moreover, we're talking about the auteur behind the film of that long-ass name. As I said before, I haven't 
seen any other Greenway films. I've I've collected them over the years. I have a bunch of them sitting on my shelf. Have I watched them yet? No. Uh, will I? Probably eventually. That's the danger of film collecting is that a lot of times you set them aside and you think, okay, yeah, one of these days I'm going to watch this and then you never get to it. So I have been hearing about the falls for years. Um, have I watched it yet? No. Uh, I've got the two Slipor uh, suitcases on my shelf. Haven't watched that one yet either. Uh, I'm surprised I haven't seen the pillow book because wasn't that another racy one? Wasn't that Ewan McGregor getting down in that one? Yeah. Lots of Ewan McGregor nudity. Woohoo. And he has a much better butt. I'm sorry, Fred Ward. I'm sorry to say it, but Ewan McGregor at whatever age he was at much better, butt, I'm sure than what you were sporting in Henry and June. I, I don't think that Fred would be offended by me saying that. I think Fred would probably agree that you and McGregor has a nice butt. <laughs> I could be wrong. And, and I'm sure there's some good full frontal male nudity as well. That was again, one thing I appreciated about uh, the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover. No shying away from that either. No. And that's true of all of his, or all of his films that I've seen. So nearly all of his films is that he doesn't put any sort of focus on female nudity. It's just there are a lot of sex scenes or a lot of sort of pre- or post-coital scenes, just sort of reasons for people to be naked that feel very organic. But as we talked about earlier, he has a way of portraying bodies that seems very natural. Even if it's someone like Ewan McGregor, most of the time, it's characters who are actors playing characters who are normal people or look like normal people, not stars. You, you said that this actually might have been a good film for us to cover when it comes to an introduction to, to Greenaway. Where would you, and I'm going to ask you the same question, Ken, where would you suggest people go after this one? I think probably Zed and Two Knots, which is even visually richer than this film it has a more complicated narrative and he sort of goes off on these tangents now and again but it's similarly heartbreaking and i mean it's so it's basically about these twin zoologists who lose their wives in a car crash and become obsessed with death and sort of want to revert to the womb and and that's all I'll say but it has the same sort of the same sort of rhythmic structure that the cook the thief his wife and her lover has and I mean you could watch it 20 times and still not pick up on all the crazy things he has going on it's also pretty similar at least I found it to be similar to dead ringers on a surface level because of the uh, twin brother situation uh, the gynecologist in Dead Ringers, the zoologist in a Z and Two Knots, but they both have a an, a bonding over something. Well, it's supposedly based on the same factual story about twin doctors. Yes, and I don't want to say any more because I don't. I definitely don't want to ruin Dead Ringers for anyone who hasn't seen it. And. I d- I do know that Green, Greenaway did say that uh, a couple months before Cronenberg started shooting Dead Ringers that he, he asked to speak to Greenaway. And he spoke for a couple hours specifically about a Zed and Two Knots. To be a fly on the wall. Would you agree Zed and Two Knots next or where else would you have people go? The 
thing is, I was fascinated by Greenway because at the time that uh, I first started seeing his films, I was just struck by how visually extravagant they were. I mean, really arresting and so beautiful. And it was almost as if these painters emphasize, you just get more of a contrast, high contrast between colors. And he uses like bright reds and there's a lot of primary colors throughout. And it just seemed to pop. The only other person I could think of who was doing that type of thing or had done that type of thing up to that point was Kubrick, really. Uh, They're just so visually, have so much presence visually. And that was what initially uh, struck me about Greenaway's films. They're just so great to look at. So I would say any of the early films I saw, I still haven't seen The Falls. And I've kind of seen Belly of an Architect. I had it on videotape. I don't know if I watched the whole thing. But uh, Dressman's Contract, Drowning by Numbers, uh, Zed and Two Knots, they're great to look at. Now, as far as following a narrative or whatever... I tend to think Draftsman's Contract may be, of those films I just mentioned, the most accessible in terms of, uh, I mean, sure, it's challenging and it presents its own problems, but I would go there, perhaps, and then Zed and Two Knots, or Drowning by Numbers, either one, really. That's why I sort of paused when you asked, because I I wasn't sure if I wanted to say Zed and Two Knots or Draftsman's Contract, and they are kind of back-to-back in the sense that after the falls, he made Draftsman's Contract, and then he made Zed and Two Knots. But I think Draftsman's Contract is maybe one of those movies where you sort of need to know what you're getting into a little bit to appreciate it, because he plays... It's it's sort of set up as this comedy of manners, this period comedy of manners that's set in, I think, the 18th century. But it's really this intellectual game that plays out as a murder mystery and it's amazing but i think if you go in not knowing what to expect and you're just sort of bombarded by all this really manneristic dialogue it might be off-putting but if if you just give it time to unfold it's so rewarding i agree and you both need to see the falls which is totally different and i i'll have to see that too i've yet to see it the Falls is probably not a good place for anyone to start because it's really experimental and is not the type of film I would normally like, but there's something really wonderful and absorbing about it. Like you get kind of addicted to watching it and you don't want it to end. For folks listening at home, can you describe what The Falls is? Because the just the conceit of the the film itself is something I always find fascinating. So it's sort of almost like he... <sighs> Like, as we mentioned earlier, with the way that he splits up the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover, and the way that he kind of divides these other films, he gets really preoccupied by sort of this encyclopedia that he has in his head. And The Falls is like an encyclopedia. It's an encyclopedia. It's sort of a an experimental film encyclopedia of what happens after the world nearly ends and everybody is obsessed with birds and flight and flying. And I hated the first five minutes of it and was like, what the fuck have I gotten myself into? Like I it's, it comes across as a documentary and it follows this thing. 
that I think is called The Violent Unknown Event. So once again, he gives you no backstory. It's just, you know that a bunch of people have died, and I, I feel like the more I talk about it, the dumber it sounds. <laughs> but, but it's so beautiful, and some parts of it are really moving, and some parts of it are just, as you mentioned, really visually pleasing, even though it looks nothing like the sort of stagey theatricality of his more well-known films. And some parts are really funny. Like, I would say certain scenes borrow from British situation comedy, kind of like almost Monty Python's more surreal and absurd stuff. And there's just this great balance between all of them. It's it's wonderful, but really hard to describe in a concise way. And I am not a concise person. <laughs> this place is too dark. Could do with a respray. Gold, it needs more gold. Gold and blue. The thing with Albert's character is, like we said, he is really, really horrible. I mean, he's abusive and humiliating to everyone. He tortures people. He does all this crazy stuff. But I think what makes you like the character is that Greenaway isn't afraid to humanize him and to make him funny and ridiculous at times. And I think Michael Gambon knows that he's supposed to be funny in certain scenes, like when he pronounces things incorrectly, or probably the scene that I think is the funniest is when he has his gang steal what he thinks is really fancy silverware. And he goes into the restaurant and announces to Richard that, that he's going to be making a change because he, he brought him this gift and Richard looks at the silverware and basically says that it's cheap crap and that it can't be served with the food. And so, so Albert acts like it's someone else's fault and demands that Tim Roth's character throw it all away. <laughs> <laughs> it's genuinely very funny, though. Oh, I I laughed several times out loud through, throughout this movie. I mean, as... Horrible as this, as it sounds as a setup, there's some really very funny stuff in here. You mentioned Monty Python and just that accent that Gambon is using in the film. It reminds me of the, uh, there's the guy who cleans public lavatories. What job do you do? Uh, I'll clean out public lavatories. <laughs> is there a promotion involved? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There are definitely scenes in the falls that are like that, and I would say it's more sophisticated humor than a lot of maybe American sitcoms, but and it's definitely subversive humor. Like you don't always see it coming. You don't realize that it was funny until it after it already happened, if that makes sense. I've found it curious that the production values on his films are incredible. He uses great people world-renowned cinematographers and uh, Michael Nyman and uh, of great actors and actresses. That score is just amazing. It is definitely. And Sam, you being the, the real fan here, uh, how does he manage to make films with such great production values and seemingly with a lot of budget, a big enough budget with uh, kind of like a, marginal audience 
So one of the things he does is a trick that people like Roman Polanski, and not to bring him up again, but Andrzej Zhivovsky had to employ throughout their careers, which is to get money from multiple countries. So this film is England, France, and I think the Netherlands. It's, so it's a co-production, and most of his films are. And I think that's the way he got around a lot of it. Plus, I mean, his name has a certain amount of art house currency. So I think he sort of lucked out on that. And I mean, I think this is probably his most financially successful film. But he's, I mean, he's kept it going. I, he, he's also, I think, does, like you said, seem very OCD and is very particular and does not make these accessible films. But has this sort of established reputation as an artist, not just a director. And so he also, I think, works, especially in the last 20 years or so of his career, works with a lot of arts foundations, like the the more recent titles that he's done, uh, like Night Watching and Gultius and the Pelican Company and things like that. I'm pretty sure were partially funded through arts grants and were essentially done at sort of in collaboration with these arts projects, like sort of the way that somebody would apply to the Goethe Institute for a grant to write a book. So well, he, he does whatever he can, basically. Well, you'll be happy to hear this because the most recent thing I saw, I Googled it today, is an, a gentleman named Keith Cassander who has, is listed as a producer on, like, I think, 10 films of uh, Greenaway's. Uh, he's announced uh, 15 new Peter Greenaway projects. Whew! <laughs> I need the fainting couch, and also I need to find that guy's email address so I can begin my career as a stalker. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he produced the, the Eisenstein, and I'm not pr- sure how to pronounce it. Oh, Guanajuato. It. Right, and there's a sequel coming up called uh, Eisenstein in Hollywood, which I'm actually looking really looking forward to seeing that. And uh, that's supposed to be a, a trilogy, so there would be a third Eisenstein film after that, and then other things, I imagine, future projects. However, bear in mind that Greenway has also said that he plans on killing himself when he reaches the age 80. Well... I hope he doesn't do that. That would be some George Sanders nonsense. But you, you hadn't heard that? Well, I I was never sure if he's with him. It's always hard to tell if he's serious. I mean, when you so when I saw him talk, he has this way of seeming really serious, like everything he says is serious and he's really intense. But the more you listen to him, you sort of get this sense that he's this really brilliant guy who just doesn't want to be bored and always wants to be passionate about something. So he definitely does have a sense of humor that is, like I said earlier, a more subversive sense of humor. So I kind of, I don't know, grain of salt. I mean, I think if he has projects that keep him passionate and interested, he probably won't do that. Yeah, but like Pete Townsend, he'll have to explain himself afterwards. Or he'll say that it was some sort of elaborate artist stunt. Oh, it could be, could be, but I've seen, I have seen the, uh, that quote are, are re- referred to anyhow, and at least a few places. So, but, and it would, it would fit in with his whole system 
formalist system like uh, numbers and letters and I'm going to kill myself at 80 and blah, you know, uh, structure and all that stuff. Yeah. Ken, why are you trying to break my heart? I'm sorry. 15 new projects. <laughs> exactly. See? No, I and I think he definitely his his recent stuff has seemed it's it's different from his earlier films but still really really visually rich. I mean, if you want to check out Eisenstein in Guanajuato, it's on it's streaming on Netflix. I mean, a lot of the more recent stuff, like I think Rembrandt's Jacuzzi and Night Watching, you can rent or they're streaming on Amazon. It's like it's out there. It's not like he has this career that's gone on forever but has been completely ignored. Like he's still relatively, I think, famous in to art house people. So he's never dying. I'm going first. <laughs> I was recently in Amsterdam not too long ago, and I discussed this months ago with Mike, the possibility of interviewing him for this particular podcast. It didn't happen because I was I did put in a, a request through uh, via his uh, website and I didn't get a response. Then I watched a few interviews and I kind of like I said, he's a tough nut to crack for me. And I was kind of put off by a couple things, found a few things engaging. Ultimately, I threw up my hands and said, I don't know what I would talk to this guy about anyhow. Sam, what would you talk to him about? From the interviews that I've listened to and when I saw him talk and one of my friends had him out to speak earlier this year and said he was really engaging. But I think he's the kind of guy where you don't really have a bunch of questions prepared i think you just have to get him engaged and then he it's like you you let him go and he just keeps talking is sort of how it seems i mean i would i would love to ask him about his earlier films but i'm pretty sure that at this point he's tired of talking about them so i mean i probably would just want to know how his mixed media thing got going and Sort of what you brought up earlier is how does he get the funding for this and still make it the project he wants it to be? Like, does he have to make certain sacrifices or does he just have enough of an art house following not to? Because he is really niche and I think has become more niche since the Pillow Book, which was made 20 years ago. But it's a fascinating career. Like I said, uh, the films are so glorious to look at. But in a lot of cases, for example, I saw Prospero's books, and it's mesmerizing. It's incredible to look at, but damned if I know what the hell's going on. <laughs> uh, now, later he makes that film, A Walk Through Prospero's Library, in which he explains that what's going on in the scene with a long tracking shot with John Gielgud and all these naked people who are <laughs> representative of mythological characters that are characters in the books in Prospero's library. Fantastic. I wish I'd known that when I'd seen it when it was in Prospero's books. But that's not made clear until this short film that came out afterwards. So it, it seems like sometimes there's a little bit of a, he knows what he's doing, he knows what he's going on. It's just sometimes it's like he chooses to explain and chooses to hide. Now, I know he's interested in audiences, interpretations and stuff as well. And I guess I can see that. But a lot of times when you're seeing something that is so striking, you ex 
uh, it's kind of like you expect something that is so striking to you're in the hands of an author and you kind of like want clues from the author. And it's difficult to seize a canvas that is so striking and just be be bewildered by it. I don't know. Maybe I'm a Philistine. I don't know. No, I, and I think that's why he's gotten into museum installations, because I think part of him still wants to be a painter and part of him still wants to be a filmmaker and part of him wants to lecture on art and wants to set up different ways that people can see classic paintings so that they're really looking at them and they're not just kind of strolling by and giving it half an eyeball in a museum. And I think around kind of around maybe the early nineties, like when he did that Dante series and when he did Prospero's books and when he started making a few more documentaries it sort of seems like that's the seed for his for his museum installations is he doesn't just want to make a narrative film because he certainly kept making those with Baby of Macon, Pillow Book, Eight and a Half Women. But so it almost seems like he's making films, two sets of films. One are the narrative films that are really beautiful that we've been talking about. And the other are these films that are meant to make you, to force you to be a spectator separated from that narrative cinematic expectation. And I think that's off-putting for a lot of people. And I certainly wouldn't say to anyone, oh, start with Prospero's books. It'll be great. You'll love it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. You might love it eventually, but you have to get to know him and you have to get to know what about his career you like and what you don't like. And I think it's definitely easier to see that type of work where he's talking about it or he's presenting it in some sort of documentary form. Well, it's certainly a challenge. And I'm not saying it's probably a challenge worth uh, investing oneself in. Uh, I just find it. I mean, there are kinds of uh, when you're making films with the visual style quality uh, of that, that Greenaway does, uh, is it experimental or is it avant-garde or is it, but it looks like what we're used to seeing as regular traditional cinema. I take another example, David Lynch. Now, Mike, I don't know if you saw, uh, the last episode of, yeah, I sure did. Got light. But that was for whatever reason, I, uh, that was the most, experimental avant-garde piece of television I've seen in ages. And I found that so compelling. Nonetheless, I think that there's something it's drawing us into a world or something. And I just don't get that feeling from a lot of uh, Greenaway's work. It seems like the world is closed off that experimental world for me. Anyhow, it's closed off. There's nothing to go into. It's, but in the example of the Lynch, that's something that, you know, uh, like I just explained, I feel like you're diving into something or you're being taken to something. And it could very well be a, a difference between the two artists, but they're both painters. And actually, there's stylistic similarities between their paintings. If you look at Greenaway, I don't know who started first. They're roughly the same age, I think. But it's the difference between the two artists, probably. So, yes, there are definitely similarities between the two of them. 
the difference is in exactly what you were saying that Lynch, if you, even if you know nothing about experimental film or surrealist film, if you're willing to give him a chance, he tells certain emotional truths that are accessible in a, in a different way than the way we would normally say, Oh, this movie is accessible, but they are. And I think you can have these really emotionally impacting experiences from, from them. And I'm a big David Lynch fan, so I'm biased, but with Peter Greenaway, I totally agree that most of his films are closed off and you need a specific set of cultural references that they are very, they're intellectual exercises a lot of the time. And I know that can be off-putting. So I am always prepared to defend him, but usually like if somebody told me that they, I'm trying to think of a counterexample of a director where I would just be shocked if you said you hated them. Like if someone told me they hated Lubitsch, I don't know that I would know how to respond to that. If somebody tells me that they hate Peter Greenaway, okay. Like it's get it, yeah. It's not well, it's definitely not for everyone. And I think I mean Zhuavsky's the same way. It's not for everyone and he was a notoriously difficult man who I think knew that he was not making films that were gonna become summer blockbusters in Hollywood, but that's, those aren't the kinds of films he wanted to make. And Greenaway is, I think that's why it's so easy for him to move back and forth between the art world and the cinema world, because in his head, they're the same thing. By no means do I say that, am I saying that I don't like Peter Greenaway? I've always just found him to be kind of like a, a curiosity around the fringes of, of film more or less. Definitely. An outlier who, like, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the artist Matthew Barney. Yes. Okay. Uh, Bjork's husband or whatever. He has made films that are equally as stunning and just as uh, (laughs) off-putting in a way, but they are fascinating nonetheless. And I, I feel similarly. Greenway as much has had a history of making films that have more of a narrative thread than Barney does, but uh, it's it's a similar thing. They're doing this stuff that looks fantastic, and yet it doesn't have, and it's not intended really for a mainstream audience. That is maybe why Greenaway is so hard for some people to get into, because it's not like he's somebody that is introduced to you as an experimental filmmaker. I mean, he's not, you know, Stan Brackage or someone where you hear, okay, this is not a narrative experience. This is a purely visual experience. Maybe there is a narrative, maybe there isn't. But I think he's presented to people as this sort of, like you said, outlier narrative filmmaker. And so he sort of doesn't easily fit into one category or the other. And I do think people need a place to start, some context, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just he's a they're different oh, kinds of films. Oh no, it's it's fascinating that an artist can work and not really be pinned down as one or the other. I think that's great because uh, so often uh, we follow a narrow perception of the way things have to be, and since Greenaway does that, it's like. I'm happy he's out there. I'm happy he does what he does. I find it really fascinating. But it's just that it's tough for me to get into that area where, like, I, 
I'm never going to be a stalker. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, he is wildly cantankerous, <laughs> and I think he likes to be difficult on purpose, which I find endearing, not just in him, but in other directors who are the same way. But I, I, I've known too many people who like being cantankerous on purpose in my <laughs> oh, personal <sure>. life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it can be obnoxious when you have to deal with it on a personal level. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Takashi Miike's Visitor Q, where we'll also be talking about Pasolini's Teorama for good measure as well. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Ken. What has been keeping you out of the posh restaurants lately? I'll tell you, the uh, La Hollandaise, if I were writing a Yelp review, I zero stars. But <laughs> but uh, no, I've been just, uh, like I said, I recently got back from a trip to Europe and I was in uh, Holland, got to see the Rijksmuseum, Belgium, and in uh, Fra- Paris as well. And so I've just been kicking back since then, taking in Wyandotte, Michigan, in all of its glory. Is it true that they used mayonnaise on their French fries? Oh, my God. Best <laughs> fries I've ever had was in a train station in Utrecht, Netherlands. Fantastic. So delicious. Oh, yeah. And Sam, what has been keeping you busy when you're not in public lavatories? So it's funny that you mention a public lavatory because <laughs> there's a new issue of Diabolique magazine coming out this summer. And it's sort of all occult and witchcraft themed. And I wrote an essay about the devils, which, you know key scene in a public lavatory. And I almost actually brought this up earlier because I've been thinking about it so much and how Greenaway's lavatory and Derek Jarman's lavatory are two very different places. (laughs) (laughs) But both beautiful. Both so beautiful and both filled with two of the greatest actresses that we still thankfully have walking among us. Uh, other than that, I have been hard at work on a book on Fritz Long's M, which is due out next year. Fantastic. I'll have to pick that up. Thank you. I'm excited. One thing, Mike, I, I mentioned uh, being in the Netherlands. I went to several McDonald's over there. 
specifically to see if there was <laughs> any way possible I could order a Royale with cheese. That menu item does not exist. Oh, you just blew the lid off of I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe they changed the name of it at one time or another. But they had these kiosks where you can order at the McDonald's in uh, the Netherlands. And so I didn't have to go in and actually order anything. All I had to do was look at the kiosk. And I, I tell you, I looked five, six different places. No Royale with cheese. I think it might just be France. France got the Royale with cheese? I believe so. I thought it was Amsterdam. Hmm. Yeah, it's the little things. The tiny differences. <laughs> I don't I don't know about the quarter pounder with cheese. I was looking specifically for the Royale with cheese. Sorry. Sorry. Sorry, Quentin. Well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, and you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.